all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Uh, join us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Do all of those things. Now. Yes. Right now. <laughs> oh, join our gift exchange. Yes. We've got one more week. We do. In which to do that. Um, I will. Anti-capitalist. Yes. Uh, uh, extravaganza bonanza. Anti-capitalist. Gift exchange extravaganza banana. Yes. Yes. Um, because somehow I managed to plan it so that I will be assigning recipients the day I'm having surgery. So <laughs> that should go great. <laughs> great timing. Yes. Deadline to submit your name and info and all that, <coughs> excuse me, is November, Monday, November 14th. Yes, that's the day. <laughs> the next day I will be getting hand surgery. So n- nothing to worry about. Just carpal tunnel and trigger finger. So. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> I'm like exa- oh, exhausted yeah. thinking of the next like three weeks. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's coming through. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm sleepy because I want our new bed. <laughs> That we ordered today. Yes. We'll get it eventually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So. Bed shopping is sleep, in, sleep inducing. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of how you bed shop. <laughs> <laughs> you go to sleep or pretend to. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's see. We've got, uh, I believe, the World Series could end tonight. Oh, uh, Philly and Houston, right? Yeah, Houston's up three to two. Okay. So I'm going to be watching a little bit of that later. Okay. At least see the end. Like, I don't really have an interest all that much other than, like, nah, that's the end. Are they in Philly or are they in Houston? I think they're in Houston, so. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, well, I have For no all interest. of our baseball fans out there. <laughs> okay, for, you're just I, trying was, to throw was, them a bone. <laughs> that was specifically for Lee. Oh, he's, there you he's go. The only, he's, he's the only known baseball hey, fan. speaking of Lee. Oh? Lee sent me an email. It's a story about uh, cholera. So I forgot that Lee has an account called King, I think it's King Cholera. Okay. <laughs> Where he pretends to be cholera. <laughs> Interesting. It's funny. It's really funny. But um, he wrote me this uh, and <clears throat> I neglected to read it, just even myself. And I'm like, well, let me just read it on the show. That way I'll make sure I read it. Um, so he said, here is a sad story that happened during the 1830s cholera outbreak. Jim Bowie was the biggest charlatan to ever come from my home state of Louisiana, which is saying a lot since the state is known for producing charlatans. I was going to say that is saying a lot. Like the one, the biggest one. Really. In 1832, Bowie was living in San Antonio, where he had married the daughter of the wealthiest family in town. Her name was Ursula Veramendi. She was, by all accounts, fine AF. (laughs) No, and we know Lee enjoys uh, a historical lady. Of course. (laughs) Knowing that cholera was making its way westward, Bowie sent Ursula and their two children to stay in northern Mexico at the Veramendi family summer home. He was certain that cholera would make it to San Antonio, but the rural summer hacienda in northern Mexico should be safe. Well, 
By some miracle, cholera did not come calling in San Antonio despite outbreaks all around, but it did sweep through northern Mexico and Ursula, her two children, and both of her parents died from it. Bowie never forgave himself. Granted, he was kind of a dick, but no one deserves that kind of guilt. My son lives in San Antonio, and as far as I know, the city is cholera-free at the moment. (laughs) That's good. At the moment. Yeah. Um, I saw a... King cholera. King cholera. I know. It's funny. Um, That that is so very much Lee. It's so very Lee. Uh, (laughs) I saw a a TikTok from NPR where they were covering Haiti. Like, Haiti's not doing well. No, it's not. Their government is, like, massively failing the citizenry. But then, so the UN is talking about having an international intervention, basically. And people in Haiti are marching with protest signs being like, stay the fuck out. They're like, that's why we're in the problem we are. So, um, but cholera is Mm -hmm. a big issue right now in Haiti because Mm -hmm. of... Lack of infrastructure, oh, safe, yeah. anything. Like it's yeah, it's not not a place in the world you'd want to be. Pretty much at any <sighs> given time, the last couple hundred years. Haiti has not had a good or <laughs> not, easy not time good, of things. Not, not a good run. No. They're, they're just constant. They're they're like uh, let's see who are they like in professional sports. They're like the L A Clippers. <gasps> just well, L A Clippers had a good run though. Recently. I don't think they ever won a title though. No, but they had a good run. Yeah, I mean, but I mean overall, their oh. overall body, oh, okay. their gotcha. overall body of work is not inspiring. <laughs> I remember when they were a punchline back in the nineties. I think they are. Again. I don't know. I don't follow yeah. them. Didn't I, I, somebody super like some huge star go to the Clippers? Yeah, uh, Blake Griffin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go for yeah, our there. NBA fans. So MLB, <laughs> yes. NBA. We always cover hockey and football, the, so the, there you go. The Hurricanes are off to an eight-two and one start. Nice. In eleven games. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's 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 the kind of start you need when you are. Uh, Vegas had them f- for, at fourth best odds to win the cup. Okay, so nice. That's up there. It is. Very they were good. they had fifth best last year, so they they oh, moved they moved up a notch. Up. Yes. Very good. And of course, the Buffalo Bills yeah. are about to become seven and one tomorrow on November sixth. Yes. Well, we just ate into my car fund yep. for a few weeks. <laughs> So here's still, hoping I don't need to get still get the like they don't win. Still get in the car. I'll work overtime. <laughs> I will. Okay. Yes. Hey, I, I will. You buy me the car. I'll do it. Yes. No, I'll make up for the you know, the, oh, I gotcha. the, the little extra. I gotcha. <laughs> um. So fortunately, we have just had like a. In addition to our backlog of scripts, a nice little influx recently of listener scripts, which is thank you again fabulous, and I will thank you a thousand times because we're probably going to do the next month or so on listener scripts. Because we got a lot going on, a lot is going on. We're probably also going to store up a couple episodes. So if you uh, hear some episodes that aren't as timely, that might be because we sort of saved them up ahead of time um there's a decent chance that we'll need to go to miami on short notice my grandpa's not doing well and is in hospice he's 86 lived Mm -hmm. a long life but you know it's it's getting to be that time so um but so yes thank everybody for their script contribution steven just sent us a new one i'm like yes (laughs) we have so many reliable yes we do uh, script contributors and to everybody who has ever contributed thank you so much absolutely um 
we have a new contributor. Oh, very this nice. scripts we have not yet done. Okay. And that's what we're going to do I'm tonight. I'm excited. And I think you're going to really enjoy the subject matter and content of the hist- history surrounding this, um, this particular disaster. So this is our new, uh, and I never know if people would prefer that we say their last name, so I usually just st- stick with a first name sure. basis. Um, but this is our listener, Mick. Okay. And this is uh, a little bit about Mick. He said, uh, as someone who initially earned a bachelor's degree in German and modern German history, and who spoke no German going into college, (laughs) I can totally remember the weird little quirks of getting the pronunciation right. Now, this was an email regarding another script where he gave us a whole, I'm sorry, uh, Mick, I said he, I didn't, I assumed your pronouns. I apologize. Um... Uh, uh, another script with uh, an entire German pronunciation guide. Oh, okay. So that's fantastic. Um, Luckily, dedicated work paid off, and I've been in Germany for the past few years studying for my law degree and am moving to Austria to do a master's in international law and politics. Jesus. Why are you listening to us? (laughs) Well, and then Mick said, I absolutely love your podcast and appreciate that you get political when the situation calls for it. Thank you, Mick. Thank you. Very kind words. We, we appreciate the fact that an international My lawyer, potential yeah. <laughs> international well, lawyer. An, an international politics, uh, German yeah. expert, German history. Is, uh, is checking out our our wee little podcast. And contributing yes. again, like all our, our smarty smart pants, not saying that anyone who doesn't do this is not a smarty smart pants, but we have an entire bibliography, inline citations, pictures, the whole bit. This okay. Is, Mick is going strong yes. on this. And this is he's even... going he's going international law student <laughs> on this one. And this is not the first script that Mick has contributed, but it's just the first one we're doing. We're doing them a little out of order of what um, how Mick sent them in. Okay. This is the story of the White Friday avalanches. Okay. Okay. Right. So the date is 13th December, 1916. Ooh, so we're just in the middle of something I just finished yeah. watching. The because you'd watched All Quiet on the Western Front, right? Yes. Uh, quick sidebar. Uh huh. Um, if anybody has a Netflix account, um, if you don't, let me know. If you're a World War One or just a war historian, mm-hmm. so they made a new version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a German-made film, mm-hmm. but you can watch it in English subtitles, subtitles which is what I did, and they it's dubbed over in English. I don't think it's the actual actors but you don't really notice oh wait did you watch it with subtitles or did you watch it with dubbing i think it was both oh okay. And anyway um so yes there's a new all quiet on the western front which was originally a novel about world mm-hmm. war one um and then a movie in 1930 or 31 early did on movies and then i think they did another version in the 70s and yeah then, there's been multiple i think and now this one so uh-huh. it's uh fantastic it's gruesome mm-hmm so I have a feeling that World War World War One is going to come into play, and possibly Germany, given Mick's uh, area of expertise. But let's see. The mm. location is Mount Marmolada, Italian Dolomites. Okay. The death toll is estimated five to ten thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which now that was like a normal battle. Sadly. Yeah. Right. Well. Um. So, I did not read. That. The German pronunciation guide yet. Fortunately, Mick provided both the German and the English version of this poem to 
uh, act as a an overture okay. to this tragedy. Um, uh, the the Cockling disaster. Oh, Bay this, Ta- yeah, was that Aces? I think that was. It was certainly not us. It was not. <laughs> I feel like it was Aces, but I apologize if it was not. If I'm mis- misattributing that, but started with a poem too, or ended with a poem. Anyway, we like the poetry. So I will only say the, uh, just for everybody's amusement, everyone who speaks German's amusement, in other words, for Mick, I will attempt to just say the title in German. Okay. And then I'll do sure. all the English translation. So, Die Toten im Schutzengraben. That sounds Let me right. know how I did, Mick. Can I see? Yeah. Where are we on the, uh, okay. Uh, Die Toten im Schutzengraben. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for your approval. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let us know who said it better, Mick. Me. <laughs> that means The Dead in the Trenches. Yeah. By Max yeah. Dothany or Dothany. There was a endless amount of those. Yeah. At night, we feel hard, shoulder to shoulder. And when the eyes search through the moonlit field, the cold ones become colder. Nighttime frost coats, their limbs wither. Many a man's chin sinks, crunching down, and we believe that they are cursing again. Sometimes when we try to sleep, we see something shadowy rising, the moon and the stars shining through his breast. And he keeps the watch over us exhausted ones, from gunstock to feet in the heart's pooled blood, until the day rises to the roof of heaven, until the bright disk of the sun relieves him, lighting up the snow flurries, and the dead so near to us. Sounds like fun. <laughs> and um, Mick did all the translating for That's everything. So, yeah, yeah I, I would have to say, I mean, uh, this is probably like the most brutal war there's ever been. Mm-hmm. On so many different, in so many different ways, too. I mean, uh, World War II was pretty mm-hmm. bad. World War II, the casualties were two or three times higher worldwide, I think. Something like that. But, uh... The methodology. Ba- battle, battle plans had caught up to technology at yeah. that point. You didn't have fucking... And there was doing... more technology. Yes. Just because it was years later. Yeah, people yeah. adapted better. This mm-hmm. was, this was wow, we have all these new toys. Let's stick to battle tactics that are 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not good. So, um, I, I thought about initially, like, having you read this one, because it's about a topic you're really interested in, but sure. then I thought that you might be more interested in giving feedback about it, because you, no, or, or, you know, uh, you, you contributing know, to you, it. You know me, that's the only way I contribute. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, 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 I said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so an overview of the war. Yeah. In 1878, the Habsburg dynasty of the Austro-Hungarian Empire became the administrators of the province of Bosnia. The official sovereignty was to be retained by the Ottoman Empire. That's right. So the Ottoman Empire ended at, at World War One, right? After, After it. the yep. war. Okay. At the same time, the Habsburgs recognized neighboring Serbia as a sovereign state, with the king Milan I of Serbia maintaining close ties to Austria-Hungary. This reminds me so much of there was this fantastic PC game in the nineties. Oh, I think it's called something the Express. The Midnight Express. No, 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 no. It's Polar the Express. no. What's the what's the really famous Polar Express? <laughs> <laughs> what's the really famous um train that used the Orient Express? Oh, okay. well, um, sure. I was I was gonna say B and O Railroad. <laughs> no, no, in Europe from from Monopoly. 
Uh, <laughs> no. Um, it was a. It was one of the first like cap motion capture video games. Really. It was amazing. I'll have to find an old YouTube of it. It was a fantastic you can game. Probably, you can probably still get the game. No, the problem was that the the game tech was just more demanding than most computers of the time so it was buggy and it would crash and all sorts of things that was a really hard game but it was good sounds like a great game it was really good it It was very good if it breaks your computer but it was all (laughs) it was all about like the eve of world war one in this part of the world wow okay yeah anyway In 1903, the king and queen of Serbia were killed and their dynasty overthrown in a military coup, resulting in the Royal Serbian Army installing Peter I as the new king. This new nationalist king held closer ties to the Russian Empire than Austria-Hungary, and over the next decade, Serbia began to to move to realize its goals of imperial expansion, leading to a series of clashes with their larger German-speaking neighbor, including the 1909 Bosnian Crisis and the two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913. See, I find this really interesting because I don't know that side, the Eastern European side. I do know that some people have called the Balkan Wars, like, you could almost include that in World War One. That that's kind of how it all started. Mm. Sort of the the Tinder mm-hmm. that lit it or whatever. <clears throat> Obviously, there was another incident that starts the official World War One, but kind of they had had some practice at it for like a couple years Is prior. It Ferdinand or yes, somebody. Yes, Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Like the band. Well, I mean, the, the Archduke, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, well, he's, I'm sure he's going to mention that. Okay. Yeah. As Serbia's military successes emboldened nationalists, Austro-Hungarian officials in the borderlands of the empire, namely the province of Bosnia, were increasingly targeted by assassins of Serbian allegiance. That's what that video game was about. It was like okay. about the... Um, I, uh, that, as I recall, there was a lot of Serbian stuff okay <laughs> it's a really deep video game from 1995 oh it was amazing yeah. i'll have to find i will absolutely find a youtube of it so i can show you it was really cool various nationalist terrorist groups cropped up including serb aligned young bosnia the serbian narodna narodna odbrana thank you for the um, pronunciation guide there mick and the fantastically named Black Hand. I have heard of the Black Hand. That was in that game. Mm -hmm. The aim of these groups was the overthrow of Austro-Hungarian rule in Bosnia and the unification of all South Slavs under the Serbs. Oh, here we go. Amidst the sunrest, the Austro-Hungarian heir presumptive Archduke Franz Ferdinand. (laughs) I bet when you said that, Mick was like, yes, can you just get to it? Yeah, just shut up. (laughs) Was ordered by his father... Emperor Franz Joseph to travel to Bosnia to observe military maneuvers in June 1914. In addition, he planned... It'll be fine. (laughs) In addition, he planned to attend the opening of a museum in the provincial capital of Sarajevo. I love that. So, Mick did put a a pronunciation guide for that, but I have definitely heard the word Sarajevo. Oh, sure. Multiple times. I think because of... There was a big thing in the 90s about Bosnia. Well, Sarajevo hosted the... One of the Olympics in the 80s. I want to say like Well, I wouldn't remember that. No, 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 but I'm saying uh it was a thriving city. And then just Mm. a couple years after those Olympics, you know, 
bombings and all kinds of shit. And I know a lot of things went down in like Bosnia and Herzegovina and all mm-hmm. that, but I don't remember it because I was kind of just a kid at that point. In this part of the world, at any given time, you yeah. can just say something's fucked something's up. Go- <laughs> something's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Typically, the Archduke would have made this trip alone, leaving his wife, Sophie, Duchess of Hohenberg, behind in Vienna. A love match, Sophie was of aristocratic but not royal birth, and a condition of their marriage was that it would be morganatic, i.e. that Sophie would not share the Archduke's rank and that their children would not be included in the line of succession. Ooh, that's interesting. So it's like, yeah, you can marry her, but you're not. she's not getting anything and their kids aren't you, getting anything. You can have all the toys, you're just not going to have any of the titles. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, that, right? That works. Yeah, that's fine. I would hate to be a royal. Oh, God. It sounds miserable. It would be. Absolutely miserable. Only in the capacity of his military rank and military duties could Sophie accompany him in public as his equal. And due to this, the couple seized the opportunity to travel to Bosnia together, as Franz Ferdinand would be traveling in a military capacity. Because of this military loophole, Sophie and the Archduke would be riding side by side through the streets of Sarajevo, unknowingly to their deaths. Even in addition to being a ranking member of the Habsburg imperial family, the Archduke was hated by the nationalists in Bosnia and Serbia due to his vocal support of trialism, essentially a three-state solution to the ethnic unrest in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Franz Ferdinand advocated the creation of a third crown, a crown that would unite all Slavic peoples in the empire and serve to satisfy Serbian nationalism, while also keeping them firmly under Austrian control. This was, to the ultranationalists of the young Bosnians in the Black Hand, an unbearable insult and an untenable proposition, putting an even larger target on the Archduke's back that summer day in 1914. So on Sunday, June 28, 1914, The Imperial Motorcade left the military barracks where the Archduke had inspected the troops heading for the city hall. I feel like this is like a, ooh, it's going to (laughs) happen. Although I think we know. Uh, While it had been suggested that Austro-Hungarian troops should line line the intended motorcade route, this suggestion had been rejected for fear of offending the local population. Therefore, the route was guarded by Serbian police, only 60 of whom were on duty. Even the initial departure from the barracks had not gone as planned. Three local police officers jumped into the leading car with the chief of the special police forces, forcing the officers to the special police forces to stay behind. Maybe just, you know what? There just should not be motorcades. (laughs) It doesn't seem to work out well. Not for for some people. (laughs) Not for for anybody famous or with political power. The route and the timing of the motorcade had previously been announced publicly. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) (laughs) Allowing six assassins belonging to the Black Hand terrorist group to take their positions at staggered locations along this route. The first two assassins failed to throw their bombs or use their pistol. At 10.10 a.m., the third would-be assassin, Vaso Kubrilovich, threw the bomb with which he was armed at the Imperial motorcade. Sitting in their car with the convertible roof folded back, the Archduke and Sophie dodged catastrophe. The bomb bounced off the folded back roof, detonating beneath 
the car behind the imperial couple. Okay. In horror at his failed attempt, Kubrolovic took a dose of cyanide and attempted to drown himself in a nearby river. Alas, the cyanide was out of date <laughs> and only caused him to vomit. <laughs> sounds, <the> r- <laughs> sounds like these guys are really on their game. <laughs> and the river was only six inches yeah, and 13 yeah. centimeters deep well, I mean, due to the hot summer weather. You'd have to try a little harder to drown yourself, but it's yeah, technically still doable. You know, you yeah. can drown in an inch of bath water, you, you as they say. Something like that. You just have to really force yourself but, to. But yeah, but guess what happens next? Do you know this story? Not the, not okay. the specifics well, of it. Well, like what happens next. I, I see them lying in state down here. So. Well, well, yeah, well, we know that happens yeah. eventually. How it comes to be is even stranger. Okay. The motorcade sped... I, I know it's so fun to be like, ooh, then what happens? This <laughs> happened. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Is so, that what so, I said? Suddenly we came from Minnesota. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I don't know. All I'm saying is... It's like murder, she wrote. If I move back yeah. to Minnesota, I just tell you, I would just turn back into this. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, seriously, if we moved to Canada, we would sound like the two oh, most you know, Canadian I'd, people Oh, you know, I'd slip ever. right back into it. Like, and uh, the, for the, some the, reason, I would, even though I grew up in Miami. Yeah. You would just slip, those, you would just slip into in, it. Yeah. <laughs> those few years in, in Minnesota really yeah. stuck with me. Yeah, stuck in your brain. <laughs> I guess so. The motorcade sped away to the city hall, and the planned visit and speeches were held there. They kept going, I guess. With the delegation then needing to decide what their next steps would be. Some suggested waiting at the secure city hall until troops could arrive to secure the city, though the couple insisted on visiting those wounded in the bombing at the local hospital, and it decided that their route that the route would be altered to avoid the city center. Alas, due to a communication error, the Imperial Motorcade proceeded along the previously agreed upon route. Who just, like, who would accidentally do that? <laughs> well, and they also did it alone. Oh, is that what we're about to find out? Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Another assassin, Gavrilo Princip, had ducked into a deli to buy a sandwich and consider what to do. <laughs> sometimes some of these things it's you know what it, it honestly got it reminds me of like once you once all the stuff after january 6 came out and what uh-huh. people went through like these people remind me of like the proud boys yeah <laughs> like, like a bunch of fucking idiots like hey guys in this attempt to overthrow the government let's film it <laughs> yeah right <laughs> These people were more but, successful. But these their... guys are just as dumb. And if yeah. they had had like actual motion picture equipment, which did exist at the time, mm-hmm. it's not like it's something you you got. It's at not the in your pocket. No, <laughs> but they would have done the same thing. Like yeah. the, the black hand. They would. Have been, yeah, let's let's film the plot that we're gonna. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, yeah, that's smart. Sometimes our best defense is other people's stupidity. I'm telling mm-hmm. you. <sighs> All right. So, having learned of the plan route change along with many disappointed citizens who had been waiting along the old route. Okay, so he's like, okay, what do I do now? Let me go get a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have any bratwurst? I'm hungry. Yeah. It's very... This, this black hand stuff. It's Makes yeah. you hungry. Yeah. I'm feeling peckish yeah. before I possibly kill somebody. Yeah. And, that, As... and that last guy totally fucked up with his Molotov cocktail. Like, what chance do I have? I need a sandwich. Oh. Uh... <laughs> As the motorcade turned to begin following the old route, Princip exited the deli to see the opportunity unexpectedly staring him straight in the face. They're just sitting there. 
Realizing that they'd made a wrong turn, the Archduke's car braked and attempted to turn around, shouting to the cars ahead of them that they had made a mistake. Capitalizing on this pause, Princip took the opening offered to him, stepped from the crowd onto the vehicle's running board, shooting the couple at point-blank range. Jeez. Oh. Kind of surprised it was an open casket. Well, so wounded in the stomach, oh, Sophie immediately fell unconscious, slumping into her husband's lap, while mm. the Archduke bled out from his jugular vein. So it mm. sounds like they didn't they weren't headshots. Stomach and neck. Yeah. Her husband panicked, shouting to try and wake her. Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Live for our children. Speeding towards the safety of the governor's residence for medical treatment, the Archduke insisted that his wound was nothing. To concerned fellow passengers, yeah. we, we know how this area of the world treats treats wounds. Man, a flesh wound. <laughs> to concern fellow passengers before losing consciousness himself, Sophie died en route, never regaining consciousness. The Archduke was pronounced dead minutes after arrival at the governor's residence. And yes, this is the Imperial couple lying in state, July nineteen fourteen. Wow. I would. Uh, what, what what was to come is just oh I my know, right? god! It's just. <laughs> it would change the course of world history, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. With Austria-Hungary issuing an ultimatum... Um, ultimatum. That works. <laughs> ultimatum. It was like somewhere between uranium and ultimatum. Or stadium. What is a uranium ultimatum? An ultimatum. ultimatum. That's what I'm getting. That's what the bill should name the uh, new stadium. The ultimatum. 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 Yes. That's actually not bad. Yeah, I'll suggest it. There you go. <laughs> Issue, all right, with Austria-Hungary issuing an ultimatum to Serbia, demanding the punishment of Princip and his co-conspirators, the suppression of nationalist propaganda, and the maintenance of good neighborly relations between the two nations, Serbia rejected these demands with their Russian allies backing their decision. With Germany and Austria-Hungary allied, the dominoes began to fall when Serbian troops crossed the Danube. War had been declared, and Europe's complex web of alliances quickly brought nearly every nation into the fight. I had not heard that story. I knew it had something to do with it, but I, I did not had not heard the. I mean, if you'd told that guy while he was at the deli <coughs> that hey, right? like in the next two minutes, a certain decision you make is literally going to have catastrophic consequences for the entire world forever. <laughs> Pretty, yes, forever. I mean, really. Yeah, I mean, the ripple effects of that decision still reverberate today. Oh, yes. Uh, over 100 years later. Thanks for covering. Oh, oh I, I, didn't, I thought you were going to stop. No, I was oh, saying, keep going. Yeah, okay. It's okay. Whatever. Everybody's used to this anyway. But anyway. But yeah, I, like, they should do... What is that show that they recently brought back? It used to have uh, Quantum Leap. Oh. They should do a quantum leap about this. <laughs> Where he goes back to stuff. He, he, hey, he's, have this no, pickle. No, no, no. You no. need a pickle. He's the waiter at the, he's or he's like the, the guy at the counter at the mm-hmm. deli, you know. And he just keeps screwing up the order. He's yeah, like, to, to, oh, yeah. here's your liverwurst. Yeah. I hate liverwurst. I yeah. ordered a turkey. I ordered bratwurst. <laughs> oh, oh, whoops. <laughs> there goes the mustard. Like <laughs> That wasn't going to be my version of the show, but I mean... You can go with your own. Be more entertaining. I'm I'm not sure of that. (laughs) If you were five. (laughs) Well, in maturity, sometimes you, sometimes you're a a little 
behind and in humor. Sometimes I'm a little behind. That's <laughs> <laughs> a perfect match. There we go. <laughs> All right, this next section is, <laughs> it wasn't all muddy trenches. So obviously everybody knows that we take our breaks at specific times, and I just have to interject here. It's called The Last Express, the game. Okay. <laughs> and we'll watch a video about it later, but the story of the game takes place on the last journey of the Orient Express before the outbreak of World War One, from July 24th to 27th, 1914. That's very uh, specific. It is, and it's an amazing game. I can anyway, say that. I'm, I'm interested in like getting the game. I'm sure you can. No, it's like, like they, I was reading, it was a commercial flop. They sold 100,000 units. I was one of those 100,000. Okay. Um, on a $5 million budget back mm, in the yeah. mid-90s. It's not so, very good. No, they would have had to be like one of the best-selling games of all time just to break even, apparently. But look it up on Wikipedia. It, it It's an amazing game. Anyway, now we'll get back to... <laughs> it wasn't all muddy trenches. No, it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. Though the, the Franco-Belgian region is typically the one most associated with the violence and carnage of what was then termed the Great War... World War I was fought on several different fronts. In addition to the trench warfare in Belgium and France, hostilities occurred in Africa and the Pacific as German territories and colonies were contested. Shipping lanes in the North Atlantic were under siege from German U-boats. Battles were fought as far afield as the Ottoman Empire, later Turkey, the Balkans, and Russian territories in Eastern Europe. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. I don't think I knew that there was any Pacific was involvement, though it makes oh, yeah. sense. Um... Uh, Australia and New Zealand. U-boats were a thing back mm -hmm. in World War One. Very new. But, okay. Um, yeah, Australia and New Zealand. I mean, the whole, wow. again. This, World it, War. It, mm -hmm. it served that definition. Mm -hmm. little, little did we know it would only take 20 years after this one ended. To, well, that's why it was called the Great War at the yeah. time. They're like, the Great War, number <laughs> one. there'd be another one. <laughs> yeah, this is the Greater War. Wasn't this supposed to be the war to end all wars? It was, yeah. yeah. Should have uh. been. I mean, what, what else What else would you need? To to be in the in the consideration everybody. for the uh -huh. war to end all wars. I mean, yeah. Well, we're humans. We never learn no. our lesson. Mm -mm. So. No, we're about to go through all this this whole fucking thing again. Oh my god! I, like I'm not joking. I, it's not going to be like this. It'll be drones and robots. <sighs> but uh, yeah, there's about to be a reshuffling of the map again. We're all we're all great. We're all doing just <laughs> fine. All right, of these many fronts, one of the seldom remembered and yet one of the harshest was the Italian front. Concentrated in northern Italy along the snow-capped spikes of the Alps and the Dolomites along the Australian, or sorry, <laughs> the Australian-Italian border. <laughs> the Austrian-Italian They were border. trying to make it a thing. <laughs> ah, the fighting here was just as brutal as that in the lowlands of France, mm -hmm. with the same devastating, deadly technologies being used. Compounding this, the thinness of the air made every task and each step more difficult for the men posted in the mountains, with most of the fighting taking place above 3,000 meters or 10,000 feet. Yeah. Have you ever been at elevation? I don't, I don't know that I, I really been. have. I don't think I've, I don't I've been in the, quote, mountains of, like, eastern Tennessee. Yeah, like that was years ago, and I didn't, wasn't really doing anything active. Yeah, I've been in the Adirondacks, and I think it was called Mount Major in New Hampshire. But it, it wasn't a mile high. Neither where I, where I yeah. went in the Adirondacks wasn't in Mount Mount Major. <laughs> it, was, it was not a mile high. Yeah. So because 
I know that it's a major thing because of the thinness of the atmosphere and all that, um, lack or less oxygen, but I, I've never experienced it. It'd be very interesting to mm-hmm. experience like what it actually feels like. I'm definitely going to go to Denver for a Bills game. Oh, I would love One to go to years. Denver. So uh-huh. I'll, I'll experience it then. I'd love to go to Denver for uh, sure. Former co-host Chad has been to Denver mm-hmm. uh, plenty of times to ski, and he's, he's like, yeah, it's different. Mm-hmm. He's like, your lungs feel like heavy, is how he You have to get acclimated it. It, mm-hmm. to it, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that cooking is different at elevation, too. Oh, I didn't know Well, that. wasn't, uh, Brandon was a chef mm-hmm. in Denver. Yep. I bet he knows all about that. Like Probably having does. to, like water doesn't boil the same and stuff. It's very I, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's yeah. Inter- that is interesting. On Top Chef, they had their finale one season. It was a Colorado season. And they, they like basically went to the highest point with a kitchen they could find. And they, like, the chefs were like, we literally can't bring water to a boil no matter how long we let it sit there. That's crazy. Like, it just wasn't physically possible. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's wild. So, these guys weren't trying to cook, but <laughs> supplying and equipping the posts nestled on these ridges was almost impossible, and the digging of trenches was complicated by the ice and, sur- and solid rock of the surroundings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Luckily, Austria-Hungary had recognized the need for specially trained and equipped forces for mountain warfare a decade earlier and had founded the Kaiserlich, oh, sorry, the Kaiserlich Österreichisch, Österreichisch, Kaiserlich Österreichisch, Koniglich Bomisch. Judges? Oh, there's, there's another one. There's another word. Okay, hold on. Kaiserlich Österreichisch Königlich Bomisch Gebirstruppe. Da. Often shortened, Sup, thank su- you. Super. Often shortened to KK Gebirstruppe. Hereafter to be referred to as the KK. Okay. <laughs> That's, that's fair. That's, that's, better, that's better than three Ks. I was going to say we will delineate <laughs> that it's just KK. Yep. There is a player for the Hurricanes whose nickname is KK. Th- well, th- thankfully. In, but that's en- just because nobody can pronounce his last name. In the Encyclopedia Brown series, his sidekick was nicknamed KK, which I think is a really cute name. You just could not name anybody KK no. because they're one K that's off. Too close. <sighs> too soon. Too yeah. close. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately, the KK was posted to Galicia, Ukraine, when the war broke out in 1914. Their training completely unused on that flat, fertile farm. It's like, here, you're trained for this tough terrain, now go out on this pasture. Um, uh, Thus, when the war on the Italian front heated up in 1915, the Austrian side of the border was almost completely undefended. With the recognition that their southern border along the Alps and the Dolomites needed protecting, Austria-Hungary created <clears throat> Streifkompanien, quickly realizing that even the KK men were not fully prepared to fight effectively at the extreme altitudes of the tallest peaks. The men of Streifkompanien were thus trained extensively in mountaineering, even more so than their KK forebears and were equipped with the most advanced climbing equipment that would allow them to scale cliff faces and cross glaciers and ice fields, regardless of the weather conditions. Can you imagine what these guys would have thought of, like, the free solo people? Like, fuck you, you're doing this for entertainment. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, like, like we would have been uh, trying to get out of uh, 
crossfire to climb a mountain. We're trying to literally but, defend uh, our country, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, but but these uh, this part of the world, literally twenty years later, goes through the same type of battles. And yeah. by, by then, most units, like I, I know the French, Italians, um, they all had like specialized units. like mountaineering like, units. Like yeah. like uh, obviously ski patrol is for. Like people who ski, but no, the, a military the, the version. The Blue Devils right. were they French had, skiers yes, they with had guns. A, they yeah. had a military version yeah. of that, mm-hmm. essentially, because mm-hmm. because yes, there are places where it's just uninhabitable. So yes. yeah, uh-huh. certain parts of the border are going to be left open, but that's going to make that's going to make somebody like, all right, we'll take a shot because we know nobody's there. Right, exactly. So. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is survive the elements. Right. Which, that's a tough task in that itself. That is a very tough task. And they're like, mm-hmm. if we can get through the elements, then we can get through and open up a front down here. So. See, that's why I don't believe camping to be a, a sport or an entertainment. <laughs> it's not, it's in the case of war, I will learn how to camp and survive. You'll However. Have no, have no other choice. Really. I do not find it entertaining. No, it Therefore. Cer- it certainly won't be entertaining in the middle of a war. Well, then I might as well <laughs> wait until then, right? No, because it's way more fun if there's not a war going on. How is how is wartime fun? How is simulating That's, wartime conditions you, fun? You're not. You're just going camping. That's simulating wartime. It's, it's really not. But anyway. <laughs> in addition to the general alpine equipment of snow goggles, snow boots, rucksacks, and hi- hiking sticks, the men of the Streifkompanin was are also received full ski equipment, crampons, windbreaker and matching pants, heavy parka, waterproof boot covers, and an avalanche cord. And this was pre-North Face days. <laughs> like, oh, this yeah, is all like, military like, issues. Like soldiers these days ha- are so fucking teched oh, out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. They would love to have that kind of shit. <laughs> right. The avalanche cord serves to highlight one of the unique additional risks that these troops and their Italian counterparts faced. Not only did they have to fear the usual risks of industrialized warfare and the freezing conditions and thin air, but there was always the chance that their positions could be buried by an avalanche beyond their control. Sure. Well, an avalanche Pretty is... Pretty sure that's what's going to happen here. An avalanche is literally nobody's control. So. Yeah. 20... Jeez. Yeah. So, in our warfare with Mother Earth... <laughs> you're, not, you're not winning that. None of us are winning. <laughs> yeah, we, we've definitely drawn up a big fat zero on yeah. that one. No, oh! No, no wins. You know what I realized... We did. We didn't touch on, and I'll forget if I don't mention it now. We didn't touch on the crowd stampede in um, Korea. Yeah, South Korea. South Korea. Yeah. Um, well, we know from our discussion stampede, group that yeah. pretty much everybody knows about I it. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite bad, and I'll tell you, like, well, uh, obviously, that's why we're never running out of disasters. This will happen nope. again and again and again. And I mean. You know, at this point, I'm comfortable saying crowds are kind of inherently dangerous on some level. They can be with enough people. Sure. Yes, yes. It's, yeah. it's about the size of the crowd and the conditions, right? Yeah. The modes of egress. The, and, I was just going to uh-huh. say, it's 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 the size of the crowd and the mode of egress. And apparently in this... Well, not just the mode of egress, but like the boundaries, sure. right? Like what, what physical barriers actually exist to the crowd? Apparently the one in South Korea involved a narrow alley that yeah. was going... Up or down a hill, depending on which way you were uh-huh. traveling. And then I guess somebody just kind of fell down and that started a whole... It can. It's that easy. That's... I, I'm honestly... It's crazy. Between COVID and our Crowd Crush episodes, I'm frankly just not... Like, I know you guys are going to a Hurricanes game. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'll be stepping into a stadium anytime soon. 
Well, that's stadium safe. Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, oh, trust me, I'm not calling out the Hurricanes (laughs) for having an unsafe stadium or anything. It's just, it's, it's not perfectly safe. Well, nothing is. Right. No. And. Not even Fort Knox. That's, that's, yes, all of that's true. Um, but I'm like not even willing to risk the minuscule risk. Well, before you go for see hockey, yeah, and, <laughs> and before you go see your grandfather, so oh, that's that's also a big thing. But yeah. it's actually going to be after I see my grandfather that you guys are going to the Hurricanes. But I will have a hand bandaged up, so not yes. super keen. I won't be able to hold on to a railing with that hand. That is so. true. Ah, uh, twenty to twenty-five meters or sixty-five to eighty feet long. These bright red cords, now these are the avalanche cords, were tied at one end around a soldier's waist. The remaining cord balled up and carried in a coat pocket. If an avalanche occurred, the man was to throw the ball out away from his body to be carried along in the snow behind him. Wow, I had never heard of that. Due to the length and bright color, it was likely that at least a portion of this cord would be visible to rescuers. Marked at one meter increments, rescuers could use the cord to determine in which direction mm-hmm. how many meters to dig to find the missing man. That's kind of ingenious. Before, you know, locators, beacons, mm-hmm. you know, satellites and yeah, all that. Yeah, that's what you would have now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and we've talked about that in one of the episodes. The Probably. I think so. Yeah. I think so. This is 279. How about that? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That many? Wow. Mm-hmm. Very close to 80. Wow. But, yeah, like... Um, uh-huh. Uh, firefighters have what's called a pass alarm, which if, okay. which, which reads like if they are unconscious or whatever for a certain amount of time, it goes off. Oh, okay. So like if they're not in motion, you uh, in certain nine eleven videos, you oh. hear a lot of those things going off, and that's oh. that's exactly what they are. Yeah, you know? but uh, but yeah, but now nowadays you would have like a a digital wristband or you would have something. I'm sure there's You'd, yeah. You would be tracked by a computer somehow. If you're a soldier today. Yeah, yeah. And mostly for stuff like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a training exercise or something goes, well, goes awry. And also just in battle, you know, even if it's like, hey, a lot of people are going to die, to be able to identify and let families know, like... Makes it better. That helps with yeah. that, yeah. To support the strife company, <laughs> Bergfuhren... Big... <laughs> Bake? Bergführer Kompanin. Something company. Bergführer Kompanin. Okay. Were founded. (laughs) Mainly administrative, these men were extremely skilled mountaineers who were rotated into and out of Streif Kompanin to provide practical help to the troops. I think I'm pronouncing this like it's Russian. To help the troops stationed on the peaks, bringing ice picks and climbing gear with them. Uh, so this is a picture of a radio is installed and manned by Austrio, Austro, Austria, I want to say Australia, Austro-Hungarian troops. That's a, actually a really amazing picture. That is pretty cool. They're way up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And that dude's just basically wearing like a, like, oh, like, like today what would be like oxygen. a, what would be like a spring jacket. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he's a mile in the air and yeah. None of them are wearing anything over their ears, except this one guy, but not the other. He must be the newbie. Yeah, but no, but look at the look at their hats. Oh, this guy's just like in a suit. Yeah, (laughs) like like a Mister Rogers sweater. What's what's going up on in the mountain, boys? (laughs) Signal, signal, I see. 
I don't think Germans say pip pip. But also, uh, I can. Uh, it's understandable why they would install it up there. First of all, you the, the altitude alone. Mm. Second of all, the chances of somebody patching into that signal are very remote. That's true. That's why they didn't use a lot of telephone communication during mm. World War One. When they did, they did it sparingly because it was so easy to patch into another line. At that point, and yeah. get like, oh, we know exactly what they're gonna do. I remember back in the day, they had like party lines. Oh yeah, share yes, lines? <laughs> yes. You had some, right? Oh or, yeah. In Messina, even, yeah. Yeah, even they still exist today. I was reading an article about it like a really? like a year ago. It's like a retro, like some of these party lines like never went away, and people are how funny. Yeah. Did have you heard of this app? I I'm so old because I don't even know what the name of it is. <laughs> that you like just are like, hey, I'll video chat with somebody, and they just like connect you with a random other person somewhere in the world who's like, hey, I'll chat with somebody. I've never done that. And you can that, end but, uh, up talking to yeah. anybody. Well, you can do that. I mean, yeah, you can do that. On what platform? I don't know. Something. That's what I'm saying. Like That's something. what this platform is. You can probably is. pick up your phone and be like, uh, FaceTime somebody in China or whatever, and it probably would. Don't do not do it. <laughs> <laughs> it would not do it. But uh, no, I'm, I'm sure there's an app for somebody. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah there is. Somebody, somebody, <laughs> it's just interesting. Somebody thought of that. It wasn't just unique dangers that... The men on this alpine front faced, but also log- also logistical issues on a massive mm-hmm. scale. Every grenade, every machine gun, every morsel of food, and every bandage and vial of morphine had to be carried up thousands of feet along narrow trails and via pulleys and ropes. Back-breaking work, many Russian prisoners of war were employed, quote, employed, yeah. to tote supplies, and even dogs were pressed into service in difficult-to-access areas. Yeah. While the journey to the trenches on the mountains was exhausting in summer, it was even worse in winter months oh, God, when yeah. blizzards, avalanches, and ice made every trip bear the risk, real risk of death. So the front of rock and ice. In the spring of 1916, 200,000 Austrian troops were stationed along what was colloquially, colloquially referred to as Die Front and Fels und Eis. Oh, die. Oh, it's not die, it's D. Die Front in Fels und Eis. The Front of Rock and Ice. But it was quickly realized that large-scale battles like those seen in the fields and valleys of lower elevations simply were not feasible. No. 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 It's going to be hand-to-hand combat at best. Mm. The Alpine Well, as they're all like (laughs) trying, no running, no running. There's not enough oxygen or clear pathway to do it. Better be a good shot. The Alpine Front became a fixture of fascination for German and Austro-Hungarian civilians. The majestic beauty and pristine surroundings of the mountains encouraging imaginations to run wild, conjuring images of a pure and just war fought cleanly by heroes. Huh. Whatever it takes you to get through. While the the surroundings of Mount Marmolada and other Dolomite and Alpine peaks were indeed a gorgeous contrast to the mud of the Somme and other major battles elsewhere in Europe, it is not to be forgotten that the weaponry and brutality of the fighting in the mountains was comparable to other battles on other fronts and would leave the soldiers who experienced it not infrequently maimed and often suffering from shell shock today known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Here's a picture of an Austrian soldier standing watch in a trench in the Alps. <laughs> That's wild. He looks like he's standing on clouds or it something. It does look like, yeah. Imagine having to dig that mm. fucking thing. No way. Mm. 
Because of the terrain and inability to mount huge battles, the front lines on the Alpine front were deeply entrenched, literally and figuratively. I'm sure Rachel can make a good pun out of this. (laughs) Thank you, Mick. (laughs) I appreciated that. (laughs) They were deeply entrenched, wink, wink. I don't even know what that means. Anyway, I don't know why I would be winking. Uh, The Austro-Hungarians saw themselves as valiantly defending their border against traitors. Former allies of Austria-Hungary, Italy had quietly waited to enter the war and had negotiated with both the Central and Allied powers, eventually siding with the Allies. The Italians, on their part, saw themselves as defending their peninsula and Mediterranean culture against the northern barbarians that were the Austrians. Tensions ran high. You can go ahead. Oh, what? Oh, and no. crack it open. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tensions ran high. Which calls for a beer. No, that was the sound of tensions running oh, okay. high, <clears throat> And even if territory seldom changed hands, the war was fought with as much ferocity as one would expect, with both sides utilizing hands... Oh, sorry. Both sides utilizing, I'm sure, hands as well, mines, machine guns, grenades, and other modern equipment to inflict devastating losses on their opponents. One mountain would even be renamed by the Italians to Col de Col de Sangue, or Blood Mountain, like sanguination, I guess, uh, to memorialize the hundreds, if not thousands, of Austrian soldiers who were killed there. Uh, this has a great, uh, this is a great heading. The Queen of the Dolomites. Mm. Standing at a majestic, craggy 3,343 meters or 10,968 feet, and with multiple summits, Mount Marmalada is known as the Queen of the Dolomites. So that's almost two two miles high. That's just shy yeah. of two uh-huh. miles high. No, it's 5,280 is a mile, right? Mm-hmm. Feet. They said 10,000 something feet. 968. So 52, oh. oh no, 5240 times 2 is 10,000 and more. <laughs> That's why I said it's close to 2 miles. 480, not, not, I think. Not exact or <laughs> right on the money. It's okay. It's not like I'm an accountant or anything. No. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Located in northeastern Italy... It features a large, relatively flat glacier on the northern face, while the southern face is largely composed of sheer rock cliffs. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that's what most of this terrain is. Yeah. Given its size and location, the front line ran right through the mountain with Austro-Hungarian troops on the northern face and Italian troops clinging to the cliffs of the south face. And here is a picture of Mount Marmolata, an ultra-prominent peak with multiple summits. It's very beautiful. I'm sure they weren't thinking about how beautiful it was at the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, in between uh, fighting, that's probably what they did think about. Did uh, I show I you the picture? I don't think I showed you this Which picture. Which one? Which, uh... Of Austrian troops training to climb? Oh, no, you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized that. Yeah. <laughs> Man. That's, that's some that's some uh, grand old technology right there. How, <laughs> yeah. how, many, how many people do you think died just oh, my training for that? Ugh. Thanks to the stagnant nature of the troop positions, the Italians and Austro-Hungarians made themselves as comfortable as they could. With the Central Powers known for their elaborate, dare I say, homey trenches, it comes as little surprise that the Austrian soldiers posted at Mount Marmolata set to work using dynamite and ice axes to carve a city 
Within the glacier, the ice protecting the barracks, machine gun nests, supply caches, and communication centers. Did you see the tunnel picture? I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really, it's it's kind of a cool setup. I don't know how it comfortable is. I'd oh. feel uh, mm-hmm. blasting away <laughs> while parts of a on. mountain while I'm on it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, it, could, it looks like it was, uh, I mean, that, that they looks like. They made the best of the situation. That looks like snow forts and shit we used to build like when I was a kid. And I'd mm-hmm. be like, that, that would be kind of fun. Like, kind of reminds me of the ice hotel, you know, those yeah, tourist attractions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The war part of it, obviously not fun. <laughs> no. But, uh, <laughs> no. you know, it's like they had cool tunnels and shit. Yeah. Out of sight, these were accompanied by a chapel, ooh, yeah, as well as a field hospital, and provided Austrian troops with a comparative sense of security. This was aptly named Die Eisstadt, or Ice City. With 12 kilometers or 7.5 miles of tunnels, bar- <laughs> yeah, I know, nuts. buried up to 40 meters or 130 feet below yeah, the so surface they're like, of the glacier. They're impenetrable. Yeah, it's just, unless you get into the Yeah, tunnel. that's the only way. And I'm sure they have all sorts of forces <laughs> outside to make sure yeah. you don't get in the tunnel. Troops could move about in an environment protected from yeah. Italian fire as weather weather outside. And not have to worry about a fucking thing. Yeah, like, well... I mean, you're not never worrying during the other than <laughs> other than an avalanche, but uh, well, you know, that's like what I'm like you can walk around in this tunnel freely, and you're not gonna hit get hit by a stray bullet. Like that's no. that's not happening. Not at 130 feet of no. ice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the depths of winter, the constant 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius of the inside of the glacier mm-hmm. was far preferable yeah. to the driving snow and frigid wind beyond. Absolutely. Photos of the ice city aren't particularly easy to find, but do show the complexity and the sophistication of the construction, including stairs and bridges to cross crevasses. That's and, crazy. <laughs> uh-huh, and barracks post boasting window panes and even shutters for privacy. You're fucking serious? Have they the time? Well, I mean, they I guess that's what they had. They had plenty of time. All they were doing was preparing. Man. So, a, they, so they were like, hey, let's make this the most bomb ass fucking <laughs> you know what like, you know, why the fuck why not, not? <laughs> you know yeah because and you i was thinking to do something i was like thinking that. that too and if you get enough people huddled together underground like that that's even more warm. and i'm like yeah of course it'd be warmer down there they're they're inside the earth well and there's no wind <laughs> no so yeah which is what which is on a mountain is what makes it fucking cold Very is the wind mm-hmm. you know like there's um so buffalo is getting a new stadium uh-huh i will be there for the first game this is this is gonna have some crossover. What what year? Uh, two thousand twenty-six. So we so, need to start saving. Yep, three and a half years away. <laughs> but um, one of the main problems from the stadium they currently have is it was built facing Lake Erie, so all the wind. Oh no! Like how they didn't figure that? I mean, it's not like it was built one hundred and fifty. Right. It was built fifty years ago. Right. It's like you would have thought like somebody would have yeah. taken that into. But the few games I've been to Buffalo when it's really cold mm-hmm. is it's because it's so fucking mm-hmm. windy. And when you're in a stadium like that, it's in, you can't escape it. Yeah. Like, the only way to escape... You can't escape it while watching the game. Right. The only way to escape it is to go into the corridors. Right. But back then, those were open, too, so you couldn't even <laughs> fucking escape it then. Like, you were you were kind of fucked. Yeah. No wonder everybody sneaks the, liquor in the The only game. way you were escaping it was with a flask. Yeah. <laughs> Stay warm inside. <laughs> yes. Jeez. But, yeah, this I would love to see... I wonder if it's still that. No, it can't be. Well, let's, well, let's see what out. happens. Um, 
On a surviving map, proposed routes for new tunnels are even clearly marked out. Um, oh my goodness, look at this. Okay, so this is all pictures. So here's here's the actual tunnels, and then here's what mm -hmm. they're they're like fully city oh, planning this. Yeah. And then here's pictures from inside. Oh my God! Look at that. Can you read that? Because I, I didn't read uh, that. Oh okay. Um, a diagram of the ice city showing mm -hmm. tunnels, ventilation shafts, obviously. Oh wow! Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, latrines, storage rooms, ammunition depot, barracks, staircases, and bridges. Wow. Note the German language spelling of marmalata. Stairs are represented okay. by the perpendicular lines. So oh, right okay, here. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's nuts. It's well, it's well, it's like it's like when they got this far, they're mm -hmm. just sitting there like, well, what else can we do? <laughs> like, it would like, get really fun. <laughs> yes. Like maybe we don't have to fight. Maybe we can just build. Yeah, our maybe ice we can city. just fucking build cities like in the earth. That's and like, like you know, on Animal Crossing, when I'm like, okay, I've kind of done everything and yeah, I've made what, all what the hybrid. What do I do? Let me replan the yeah, whole I, island. I, same shit in Fallout Four. It's like, okay, well, I built. Uh, establishments uh, here, here, and here. Like, okay, what can I do here? And then I'd look it up on YouTube what other people did. And right, let me redo it. Yeah. What What are the What are these pictures? Um, that okay. is definitely the end of a bridge. The you bridge of size within <laughs> yeah. the ice city. Look at that. That's you're like, wild. You're like inside the earth. Yeah. In the... Inside a glacier. Yes. And then soldiers at their barracks within within the ice, ice city. city. Look, yeah. that is a window. Yep. Oh my goodness! Like with glass. <laughs> It's like, hey, chap, cup, well, of, cup of tea, love. Oh, that's right. they're There's, Italian. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. whatever they, what do they say in uh, Italy? Um, um, like, they're, like they're greeting. They have, it's like a certain. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I love how under pressure neither of us could remember a single word in Italian. <laughs> and we both watched <clears throat> I've watched Goodfellas a thousand times. <laughs> I've watched The Sopranos. you've watched The Sopranos a thousand times. <laughs> Even though those are Italian-Americans. Gabagool. But, but still. There's some link. <laughs> manja. They had places to manja there. All right. Oh, however, not all Austria-Hungary's positions were tunneled into the ice. That's no, 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 no. They had to, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At any... They're there to prevent people from <clears throat> well, getting yeah. in. Yeah. At any given time, 200 men could be housed within the glacier itself, with further barracks built outside behind rock outcrops that could provide protection from Italian artillery. Oh, is this Austrian? Oh, that's Austrian. Sorry, I said Italian. Anyway. <laughs> While my research has fo fo focused mostly... On the Austro-Hungarian side of this period, the conditions and challenges faced by the Italians were very similar in scale and severity. Yeah, Perhaps, a, yeah, they, yeah, and they were on the worst side. Perhaps even worse, the Italian position on the southern face of the mountain had no glacier to take advantage of. Okay, so that was all the so Austro-Hungarian people. Yeah. I don't know what they say. I don't know any, um, any German, really. <laughs> um... I'm frozen. I, I, I don't know what they say. <laughs> I don't know what they say. <laughs> what do the Germans say? <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> I got you cry laughing. <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? I was not. I definitely was not. Probably... And all the German listeners have left the room. <laughs> Nick is like, this is not what I intended. Like, no, like, like we tried to give you a chance. <clears throat> Nick is like, 
You failed. You, did you read that my education <laughs> and what exactly I'm doing? Edge what? <sighs> All right. So they it forced their troops to eke out shelter on bare rock with little protection yeah. from Austrian artillery. Yeah. The Italians, too, had trained mountain troops, the Alpini. Troops in the ice city were commanded by officers who, in turn, received orders from higher-ranking officers ensconced cozily in the valleys below, away from the harshest of the weather and enemy attack, just like all management. Connected by radio, officers on the peak itself often ordered to pull troops back from avalanche-endangered positions during certain weather patterns, while the generals below would relay orders for the soldiers to remain. Mm. Oh, I forgot this is all about bad things. Mm -hmm. In 1916, avalanche risk factors were already well understood, from what weather increased the risk to where on the mountain was most likely to be affected. Given the fact that little military action actually occurred during the depths of winter, due to the simple struggle of just surviving on the mountain, it would seem prudent to withdraw troops, as the likelihood of coming coming under Italian attack would presumably be low. After all, ski patrols, when they did venture out, were far more likely to be looking for signs of avalanche danger rather sure. than am- enemies to yeah. ambush. Here is... Oh, this doesn't have a caption, but it's very interesting. Okay. <clears throat> That's a lot of people lined up to go in. It may have cut off yeah, at the bottom and it, it printed oddly. I'm not sure what my printer did. Okay. The winter of 1916-1917 was to be one of the snowiest of the entire century. That's wild. With a rain gauge in the area measuring 1,432 millimeters or 56.3 inches of precipitation between November 1916 and January 1917. Which is 80% of the average annual I was going to say, and that's only in like a little over two months' time. Yeah, basically. Wow. By the beginning of December, a low-pressure system sat over Western Europe with a second low-pressure system beginning to form in the south of France. At the same time, unseasonably warm temperatures, oh, this is not good, cold and warm air, occurred as a result of a high-pressure system in the eastern Mediterranean region, with temperatures in Greece having been analyzed as being among the warmest recorded for that month for 120 years. This warm weather increased humidity in the Mediterranean, which in turn led to increased precipitation where the low and high pressure systems met over the Alps and the Dolomites. Within a few days, two and a half meters or over eight feet of snow fell over the region, Hmm. (laughs) making fighting all but impossible for the Italian and Austro-Hungarian troops and wreaking havoc on their supply lines. By the 12th of December, temperatures began to rise. Uh, That's when it starts getting dangerous with avalanches. Mm -hmm. And the snow level, the height at which rain is expected to turn to snow, rose to over 2,000 meters or 6,500 feet. Recognizing the conditions would lead to avalanche danger as wet snow and rain weighed down an area already immense... uh, Sorry, weighed down an already immense snowpack... uh, Hauptmann, or cap that means captain, Rudolf Schmid sent a message to his superiors below. Stationed at the very highest reaches of Marmelada at the Grand Post Summit, he requested permission to withdraw his men safely. Oh boy. Receiving Schmid's message, Feldmarschall Lieutenant, or, or sorry, <laughs> 
Field Marshal Lieutenant, which I think is Field Marshal Lieutenant, sure. <laughs> um, Ludwig Goiginger, 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 Goiginger. It's like my name. Which which is it? <laughs> Turned down his request and instructed Schmidt to have his men hold their position. Presumably furious, or at least grumbling, Schmid followed Goinger's orders, keeping his men at their barracks and manning their machine gun nests. So this is another, like, incompetence of management leading to tragedy, isn't it? Ha, upper management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the next day would bring St. Lucia's Day, a celebration important to the soldiers of both sides, memorializing the life of St. Lucia of Syracuse. I don't think no. Syracuse, New York. No. That would be hilarious. It would be. <laughs> it was important to World War One soldiers in Austria. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. In Austria and Italy to celebrate Syracuse, New York. Someone from Syracuse. Hey, you never know. There's nothing against Syracuse, I'm just saying. Anyway, she was a 4th century Catholic martyr. Often construed as a celebration of light during the darkness of the winter, it is easy to imagine all of the men at Mount Marmalada preparing whatever celebration they could scrape together. Ice sculptures were involved, I'm sure. Right? Don't, wouldn't you think? Well, well, like, I'm sure some of those people have become yeah. very, very skilled at some of that stuff. <laughs> They're skilled at dynamite, so... Right? <laughs> yeah, probably with a pick, too. They dynamite the dolomites, huh? They do. All right. Uh, it's easy to imagine all the men preparing whatever celebration they could scrape together, preparing lanterns and candles and planning prayers, perhaps even organizing extra rations if they could manage to spare any. The 300-some soldiers in the Austrian barracks under Schmidt's command settled in for the night, listening to the ominous roar of avalanches running Mm. down nearby slopes in the darkness. Wednesday, December 13th, was not to dawn for many of Schmidt's men. Still enveloped in darkness, it was at approximately 5.30 a.m. when a massive avalanche fell upon the Austrian barracks at the Grand Post Summit, burying the men in buildings under one million cubic meters or 200,000 tons of snow and ice. Quote, we wanted to rush out the door, but in that moment, the exterior wall was pushed in by snow and ice. Mm -hmm. End quote. Reported one of the few survivors, a soldier named Joseph Strohmeyer, later recalled. Local doctor Nicola Ragucci, working at a civilian hospital in the valley where some survivors were later brought, reported that it was, quote, a tidal wave of snow overrunning a two-story barracks with a company of 200 men, end quote. A tidal wave of snow sounds more terrifying than a tidal wave of water, frankly. They're both pretty terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to yeah. knock water. Yeah. But. I, I would take the tidal wave of snow over the water. Why? Uh, because there's not as much energy. With that snow. But. <clears throat> that water is going to take you. That, that, that water, if there's that much coming at you, will take you, you know, 50 miles away. Agreed. But the thing is, you can float in water. You can't float in snow. Uh, but you can't float in a tidal wave of water coming at you. I gotcha. But if you're buried <laughs> under snow, what are your chances of getting out? It's better than the water. Really? Yeah. You think? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, neither of them. Are, well, no, let's ne- just, you're not surviving either. <laughs> let's just not. Let's just not do either of them. How about that? Let's yes. do that. I don't want to. I don't want. <laughs> That's why we live in Central yes. North Carolina. <laughs> I don't want to have that choice. One day. Of the over 300 men in the barracks at the time, between 270 
and 332 were killed in this single avalanche, mm. and very few of the corpses were ever recovered. Oh, from I'm the sure this. I'm yeah. just gonna say, I'm sure they're still there. Yeah. How are you gonna get to them? Yeah. And then they just and became the, part of the mountain. What's the point of getting to them? Yeah. Boy. Along with his aide, Hauptmann Schmid was miraculously one of the wounded pulled from the rubble alive. On this same day, an Italian position opposite the Austrian troops was smothered by an avalanche with hundreds reportedly lost. So this is just going mm. on everywhere. Rescue efforts were complicated by the poor weather, with weather stations in the region reporting 13 feet or 4 meters of snow within the next My 48 God. hours. In such a situation, avalanche cords were also of little use, with the men having been in bed yeah, and taken gonna... by surprise yeah. by a sudden onslaught of snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. According to... I, I'm, I'm amazed anybody survived Right? This. It, it is really... pretty wild. According to backcountry skier and mountaineer Richard Galley, the death experienced by those trapped may well have been both terrifying and excruciating. You're mm-hmm. drowning in snow. That's yeah. horrible. Upon, quote, upon completion, the slide snow will set up as hard and dense as concrete due to the friction and force. Victims are killed instantly by crushing and debris or will succumb to suffocation and exposure within an hour. Yeah, it's not going to take long. But yeah. hours long if you're suffocating. Yep. Rescuers, if they are present, cannot hear cries for help. But from below, every sound is magnified. I was told in avalanche training with the Alpini force, forces of one incident during La Grande Guerra, where trapped soldiers... La Grande Guerra, where trap soldiers fired off weapons to alert their rescuers. Upon release, those trapped mentioned their shooting the soldiers above said they heard nothing. Mm. End quote. Yeah, if you shoot yeah. up into... Uh, you wouldn't. Well, or it just embed a few feet yeah. above you or something, yeah. It has been suggested in later accounts that the troops may have deliberately fired shells into this snowpack in an attempt to cause avalanches... Though contemporary reports do not mention this. Indeed, despite the grim prospects for rescue, locals have handed down stories through the generations that report both armies laying down arms to aid their enemies when these avalanches occurred, pulling whatever they could, the living, the dead, precious supplies, from the snow before it hardened Rock Lake into what was essentially a new portion of the glacier. Mm Mm-hmm. Within the next 48 hours, 2,000 Austro-Hungarian soldiers would be buried just as Schmidt's men's were, men were, either killed instantly or trapped, screaming in vain for help for rescue that would never come before they succumbed to the cold and lack of air. Within this same time period, another 2,000 Italian soldiers are estimated to have been killed and hundreds of civilians in villages on the lower slopes. I was just going to say, yeah. too, yeah, this is definitely... Yeah, not just the soldiers feeling this. By the time December was over, between 9,000 and 10,000 telegrams had been sent to families all over Austria, Hungary, and Italy, reporting the deaths of beloved sons, husbands, brothers, and fathers, men who would never return home again, not even in coffins, their bodies entombed on the mountain where they had lived and fought for months in unimaginable conditions. Those who survived undoubtedly and understandably bore the psychological scars of what they had experienced. The fear of being at nature's mercy, of the possibility of death swallowing them up without warning. Alpino, the singular form of Alpini, Paolo Monelli would later be quoted as saying, quote, The most frightening enemy was nature itself. 
Sure. Entire platoons were hit, smothered, buried, without a trace, without a cry, with no other sound other than the one made by the gigantic white mass itself. End quote. <clears throat> by the time the war ended in November 1918, one third of casualties were the result of avalanches, one third the result of the cold, and the final third the result of actual fighting. I did yeah, not that know sense. that. Yeah. At least 60,000 men were buried by avalanches in just two winters, over twice the number of men who would be killed by a more famous foe, poison gas, on the fields of France and Belgium. And unlike the victims of the poison gas that have been remembered by history, the men buried in the Alps and Dolomites most often disappeared without a trace, nature thus robbing the families that were left behind of their corpses and personal possessions, making their grieving process that much more excruciating and protracted. Today, climate change warms the slopes of Marmalada, and the glacier has retreated, halving in size over the past century. As it retreats, bits of woolen uniform and leather boots are occasionally found by mountaineers and hikers, along with bleached bones and rusted munitions. That's wild. Well, because, I mean, one of the... <clears throat> best ways to preserve any type of mm-hmm. warm-blooded animal cold that's what they do with bodies when yep. they need to temporarily preserve them prior to yeah so i'm not surprised that yeah little by little you would find mm-hmm. that's that's crazy when identifying information can be found a dog tag a wallet that remain the remains are repatriated to their hometowns or countries yeah for burial. as they should be mm-hmm. Most often, the remains are anonymous and are buried on the mountain itself, small crosses making their final resting places. The only reminder of Europe's deadliest avalanche and the second deadliest in history. And here's a picture, I think, of like exposed barracks after this. Wow, look at that. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. Because I was just going to say, I wonder if any of these are still there, but Mm -hmm. apparently that one. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, my friends, is the story wow. of the White Friday Avalanches. I think that's what it was called. <laughs> the White... I don't have the title, sorry. I remembered it in the beginning. I think it's the White Friday Avalanches. Let me... You, you say something while I... Okay. While, <laughs> while I look this up. up. It would be really cool if all of that stuff was still there. Like, like if these avalanches had never happened and, like, all the, you know... And, of course, there's not going to be a whole lot of pictures of them from the time because... Number one, we're talking about World War One. Yes. Just a mm-hmm. regular, not a motion picture camera, but just a regular camera was mm-hmm. uh, not... Not in somebody's pocket, that's for sure. It had come along. Like, I mean, it, at that point, photos are 50, 60 they years old. They were still old. like the flash was a thing that went poof. And, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they're generally just wouldn't be a lot of pictures yeah. plus there probably didn't want them to be a lot of pictures because yeah. what they were doing was probably top secret that's true yeah so yeah man but you know what so yes that would be absolutely horrible for the the families plus the way they died that's if they i mean killed just, instantly is what you hope just, for that's what we're hoping um yeah. but in a way and hear me out on this it's kind of poetic to be sort of become part of the earth like that to be i mean again <laughs> you want to go that way but to be like imagine being buried in the snow and then preserved as part of that glacier well i, I 
And then I don't, I don't fucking know. climate change comes along and... Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily the reason why, but I know on certain peaks that people have died to climb up. Like, oh, yes. The, if you die climbing the mountain... They're still on Everest, but they're visible on Everest. Right, uh-huh. but that's the thing is you leave their body there. Yes, so that uh-huh. they're Part so of that, the mountain. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I guess the idea being that their soul makes it up to the top. Hey, whatever. Uh, but what, whatever makes fine. it better. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But, um... Yeah, you do kind of forget that they're the terrain of this part of the world yeah. is just different. And where it was different. fought. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't the Civil War. <laughs> no, not at all. But On yeah, the plains but, of But you do think, America. but I mean, a lot of people do, and I've only recently learned all this stuff in the past couple of years. I mean, World War One again, it's called a world war for a mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. Fought on the oceans, fought on land, mm-hmm. fought... That's on true, beaches. the terrain, too. Yes. It's, it's not just ge- geography, no. it's topography. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, fought in all sorts of different uh, conditions and, mm-hmm. you know. I'm going to guess that's probably about, environmentally, that's probably one of the last places you would have wanted to be. Yeah, it's rough. Until you built the tunnels and you're like, this is fucking, <laughs> this is so fucking this cool. This is so metal. This is awesome. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. I mean, hopefully it was really cool for them. I, well, it was really warm for them, which was the point. <laughs> no. But ah, uh, but yes, but mm. uh, yeah. I mean, uh, just trench systems on yeah, not in the mountains. Yes, were yeah. These are trenches in were, a glacier. Were thousands of miles long, and they had street names mm. and all sorts of stuff, and you know, they had to spe- be navigated. Yes, mm. yeah, yeah. They had that map. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean the the. Let's hope we never have to do this again. We're, we're not going to do the trench warfare thing again. Mm. That's 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 really never happening again. Yeah, we have um, much deadlier shit. Not not with the not with traditional armies. Yeah, you know, a, a local skirmish. Maybe people dig trenches, but that's 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 going to be it. A solar flare <laughs> takes the entire grid down. There you go. You have to dig a trench for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just the brutality of this war is just it's something, it's unimaginable. Yeah, and kind of. Un- Press, it was unprecedented. Oh, certainly. And, and, and never, never really, thankfully, never really yeah. replicated. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, let's uh-huh. take gas out of the equation. Mm. Stop doing that. We'll add nuclear energy. Yeah, we'll add, <laughs> we'll add more things. Yeah, we'll, we'll Radiation do, will we'll do be different huge. Shit. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll build guns that can, you know, take you out from 10 kilometers away instead of three. Mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, yeah, it's nuts. It's sad. It's like sad. it, Like, the whole fucking war is just, like... There's no winners. There's no winner, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there were losers. Germany was certainly a loser. For a time. Yeah. Um, but there's no good guys or bad guys. The, the whole fucking World War One is just... Not the soldiers, you know? No. It's like, it's, that's... No. Uh, all the pawns, The whole, the whole you know? fucking thing was kind of fucking pointless. Like, it, like... All it, war is fucking pointless. That's ultimately. true. Yeah. You know, it's the thing is, like, it's all just about power and control, and those in power controlling those, like, like we're, we're a little chess Who are out there doing the fighting. That's how we all are treated. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's hope that changes. And on that note, that was... The White Friday Avalanches. There we Thank go. you, Mick. Yes. And Mick Thank has contributed multiple scripts, so we will be getting back to we'll, Mick as well. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> Danke. Danke yes. Super. What does that mean? I think it means great. Oh, okay. <laughs> in like a, in Serbian or yeah. I know how to say shoes. 
Okay, there we go. I think that means bye. Yeah. Okay. But go ahead. <laughs> so that was the White Friday Avalanches. White Friday Avalanches. Uh, thank you again mm-hmm. for the script. Um, Mick, sorry. Yes. Thank you again, <laughs> Mick, for the script. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We will see you next week.